The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Let's pray. God and Father, we come before you and we recognize what we need more than anything is more of you. Um, more of you to give us a calm and a peace, to satisfy our souls, bring joy to our inner man. Uh, Lord, to motivate us to live for you in a way that brings glory to you. And Father, the, one of the ways that you deem to do that is through your word and by the power of your spirit. And we pray even this morning that you would use both that you would use your word, taken by your spirit, and would drive it into our hearts. Lord, that we would have a bigger picture of you, a greater sense of your glory, a greater sense of the love of Christ, and it would motivate us to live in a way that would, would really honor and glorify you. We would trust you, even in the cave. And Lord, if there are souls sitting here or watching who do not know you, have not been truly redeemed and born from above, Lord, would you be pleased to work a work even this day for your own namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, we just read Psalm 57, and in order really to better understand it, we are given a psalm heading. And not all psalms have psalm headings, but Psalm 57 does. Uh, and, and the psalm heading tells us who wrote the psalm and what was going on in the writer's life when he wrote it uh, and why he wrote it. And the heading reads, To the chief musician set to do not destroy a mictum of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. So David wrote this psalm while he was on the run from King Saul. And the reason he's on the run from Saul was because Saul was crazy with envy against David. You see, Saul was Israel's first king, but he sinned against God by disobeying God's commands. And the prophet Samuel said to Saul that God was going to take the kingdom from him and he was going to give it to a man who was better than him. And then, and then Samuel goes ahead and anoints David as a young teenager of the house of Jesse to be Israel's next king. Well, over time, uh, David becomes King Saul's harp player to soothe Saul's erratic emotional state. Uh, and then David comes to national prominence when he fights the, the Philistine giant Goliath and kills him. Then King Saul makes him a, a commander in his army, and David has military success after military success, and he's becoming the darling of all Israel. So much so that after a slaughter of the Philistines, we read in 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 and 7, Now it had happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, here it is, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And this made Saul nuts. It greatly troubled him. It made him rage with jealousy that David would be praised for killing more Philistines than he killed. So Saul was determined to eliminate David, right? He wouldn't let him take his kingdom. And for over four years, he chases David all over Israel, trying to kill him. And, and as David says to Jonathan, Saul's son, who is his good friend, he says, 
As your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, to the end of the book, David and his band of 400 worthless men are really a band on the run. And so we see David fleeing from Saul's palace in Gibeah, going to Samuel and Ramah, then to Nob, uh, where he is given the priest bread. Then he seeks, he seeks refuge with, with uh, Ashish, who is the king of Geth, but has to fake insanity and again is tossed out of there. Then he flees to a dome into a cave, and this is one of two caves that he fled to. The second one was a cave in Engedi, uh, which is the cave the majority of commentators believe uh, he writes this psalm in Psalm 57. So while he's holed up and hiding out from Saul and his army in this cave, he writes this psalm. And he wrote, he wrote at least 10 psalms while he was on the run from Saul. And in this psalm, what we see is the heart of a man who trusts God in the most trying of circumstances. So, and what I would like to do is to look at this psalm using a three-point outline, the plea for protection, the pains of persecution, and then the promise of praise. And so let's look at verses 1 to 3, the plea for protection. And I'm reading from the New King James. And there he writes, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul thirsts in you, a trust in you, and in the shadow of your wings. I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God Most High, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up, Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. Well, David's in a cave, uh, and he's, he's always looking over his shoulder because Saul is scouring the country looking for him. And I'm sure he's becoming very weary living like a fugitive. And although he's helped his fellow countrymen by fighting for them and defeating their enemies, they have gone to Saul and told Saul where David was hiding out. So his own countrymen, who he has just helped, they betray him. Well, while David is inside the cave of Engedi, Saul is outside with his men circling around, and Saul goes inside the cave to relieve himself, and David now has a chance to kill Saul, and his men urge him, and they say, kill him, kill him. But David won't do it. He won't do it because he knows it's not his place to kill him. He knows that, that the Lord will take Saul out in his time and in his way. So he will not lift his hand against the king. But David knows that Saul has no problem trying to kill him. So twice he says in verse 1, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. And he says it twice because he desperately needs God's mercy. And he knows what he needs, and he knows that only God can give it to him. He's not going to find it anywhere else. He knows that God is a God of mercy and that he's the father of mercies and that he delights in giving mercy. Right? As Lamentations 3.22 says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Right? For his compassions or mercies never fail. Or in Luke 1.50, we're told that his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And listen, what we want and what we need, and what we will be crying out for all the days of our life here is mercy. Mercy because of our sin, right? Mercy because of our enemies. Mercy to keep us from the temptations to do evil, right? Mercy because of, of, of the situations our own sin has put us in, and so on. 
Now the reason David asks God for mercy is because he trusts God. Right? He says, for my soul trust in you. For my soul trust in you. And David trusts in God because he has found God to be trustworthy over and over again. Right? He knows that God is his creator and the creator and that he is the lawgiver and that he is just and that he is sovereign and he is holy and he is all wise and he is good and he is faithful. So he knows who God is and more importantly, he knows God intimately. He knows God intimately. Therefore, he trusts every single word of God and he trusts the promises of God. And God has promised that David would be the next king of Israel. And quite a few years have passed and the vaguest odds of David becoming king are probably worse than the New York Knicks winning a championship this year, next year, or quite honestly, any year in my life. Yet God has promised David that he would be king, and David trusts God. He believes that he will one day be king. And David, and David is a man after God's own heart precisely because he trusts God. He trusts him. And you know, a life of confidence in God, in God is a great evidence that one is truly alive to God. It's a great evidence that you're the real deal. And if you're not trusting in him, then you're either trusting in yourself uh, or someone else or something, or something else in general. And, and then you're bound. You're bound for misery and failure. So brothers and sisters, we, we can't look at our situations or the state of the world around us or the fact that the world is going crazy because of the coronavirus uh, and, and get, get nerved out. Right? We, we look to God's infallible and errant and holy word and we trust every word of it. We trust what it says about God and we trust what it says about us uh, and we trust what it says about, about, about the life and the work of Jesus on our behalf. We trust in the blessings and the promises given to all who believe in him. We trust that our sin debt was paid in full when Jesus cried out those three glorious words in English, it is finished. We trust it. We trust it. And, and, we, and we trust that his righteousness and his sinless life and his perfectly obedient life now covers us. It's ours. And, and now God sees us as he sees his son. We trust that. We trust that he is sovereign over all. Sovereign over all, including our own lives. Now some might think it's strange that David, anointed to be the king of Israel, would be in a cave hiding for his life. I mean, why should he suffer so? Why should he suffer so? But as we see over and over again in the scriptures and in life in general, is, is, that, is that God's people are not immune to trials and suffering and persecution. In fact, I promise those things. God allows and ordains that his people go through some fire to purify them and to hone them and to prepare them to be useful, useful vessels for him. So we ought not to think it's strange when we are in the cave, so to speak. We ought not to think that is strange. When our enemies are hunting us down or to take us down. And listen, our enemies may be people, they're people, but if they are, they are tools of the greater enemy that we have, which is Satan himself, who relentlessly wages war against us, hurling fiery darts at our heads and our hearts. Add to that our own sin which so easily besets us, which is always knocking at the door of our hearts to get us to, to, to give in to it. Well, David's soul trusts in God. Therefore, he says, in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities 
have passed by. And in the shadow of your wings is figurative language. Uh, and the picture, of course, is a picture of a baby chick going under the wings of the mama bird for protection. And David has used this language in the Psalms as well in other places. In Psalm 61, verse 4, he said, I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. He said in Psalm 17, verse 8, uh, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. And he said the same thing in Psalm 36. And Jesus, Jesus used this figure of speech when he wept over the un unbelief of Jerusalem in, in Matthew 23, tw 23, 37. There we read, he cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. So what he's saying is I would have protected you. I would have protected you from the wrath to come. I would have protected you from the wages of your sins, but you wouldn't have it, but you wouldn't hear it. Listen to what a man, 16th century, a man named Ulysses Adelorabandri said concerning a hen and her chicks. He said, at the first sign of a predator, mother hens will immediately gather the chicks under the shadow of their wings. And with this covering, they put up a very fierce defense. They would rather die for their chicks than seek safety in flight. They're not going to move. They're not going to move. So what David is saying is there is no safer place on earth for the saints. There is no safer place on earth for the saints than, 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 than in God. Right? There is no greater refuge from danger than under the almighty wings of God, if you will. So when you need safety from temptation, run under the shadow of his wings. When you need rest because of a weary soul, run under the shadow of his wings. When you need rest in the midst of the storm, run under the shadow of his wings. When you need a safe haven from the lure of sexual temptation or immorality or the pull of pornography, run under the shadow of his wings. When fear and anxiety, which is happening greatly now, is ravaging you, run under the shadow of his wings. And here's the thing, here's the thing. His wings are always open. They're always open, right? And they're always spread wide for his chicks to run under and to find protection. So God is our refuge. And we are safe in him. Whether we're in the fiery furnace, or whether we're in a lion's den, or whether we're in a classroom with an atheistic professor and, and who hates Christianity and begs it day in and day out. He is our protector. And what he is ultimately protecting is our eternal life. Yes, he helps us physically. Yes, he helps us emotionally. He does. But many Christians are martyred. And his own son was put to a violent death, which he ordained. But no one can touch your soul. No one can touch your soul. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, Matthew 10 is the chapter where he's sending them out, right? From, from chapters 1 through, through 9, he's preparing them, and now he's going to send them. And he's going to send them out, and he tells them it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be good in the sense that you're going out like sheep to the wolves, and wolves don't like sheep. So he tells them they're going to have persecution. But listen to what he says in verse 28. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. 
but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So the worst any man can do to you and me is take your life. That's it. That's all they could do. But you know what that would do? That would just catapult you into heaven. Charles Spurgeon said, The Christian needs not dread sickness, for he has nothing to lose, but everything to gain by death. Like, what's the worst thing that could happen if someone, if we catch a disease and die? We're dying from something anyway, aren't we? We're just going to be put into heaven. I, I think it was, I forget the guy who said it, maybe Billy, Billy Sunday, I forget. Um, somebody somebody mugged him, tried to mug him in, a, in, a, in an alleyway back in the ni- early 1900s, and, and he put a gun to him, and he said, he said, you can't threaten me with heaven. You can't threaten me by killing me. I'm good to go, right? So no one can touch your soul. Because Jesus said in John 10, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Boom. And they shall never perish. There's there's, there's no losing it. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Just think of the visual for a second. That's the almighty hand of God, right? It's a figure of speech, of course, because God doesn't have a hand. But who can... Can the, the, the omnipotent hand of God, who's, who's thrusting those fingers open? Can you? Can anyone else? Well, the answer is no. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. That's our greatest enemy, by the way. And then we read in, Psalm, in, in Isaiah 41, the Lord telling his people, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Again, it's a power thing, and God has all power. So God is David's refuge until his calamities pass. And his calamities in in Psalm 57 is that Saul is seeking to kill him. And listen, we have calamities, do we not? Right? We all have calamities, uh, and and they're bound to come all of our saved days. And, And the Lord is our only refuge from them. And David made God his refuge, uh, and, and then he said, he said that, that he would cry out to God Most High, to God who performs all things for me. And, and God Most High just means God overall, God overall, that he has all power and all authority, uh, and that he is sovereign over Saul and over Saul's army. He is sovereign. It means that God is bigger than my problems, and that there is nothing that can stand between God and my need. Nothing. He is sovereign over Satan and the demons. He is sovereign over all evil. They they tremble before him, and they can do nothing unless he allows it, and if he does allow it, it's always to fulfill his will. God has a plan and a purpose, even in the evil that happens in this world. Just look at the cross. Look at the cross. So you see, David goes straight to the top, he doesn't go to men for help, but, but he beseeches God Most High and he hears him. And when he is God Most High to us, we'll go straight to him. And we won't worry, we won't fear man, but we will be quick to pray and praise him. And we'll be quick to repent because he is God Most High, amen? Well, God is the one who performs all things for David meaning that God accomplishes and completes and fulfills all of his purposes for David's life. Uh, And David knows that without him, he can do nothing. And we know that the Lord will perform all things for us, but we got to let him. 
right? We gotta surrender, right? We have to surrender every area of our lives. And we just gotta say, Lord, take it all. Take my life and let it be. We gotta surrender and he'll take it. We gotta believe that all things work together for good to those who love God. We gotta believe that, that to those who are called according to his purpose. We gotta believe Romans 8, 28. So David says, I will make God my refuge. I will cry out to him. And then he says, he knows what the response will be in verse 3. There he says, he shall send from heaven and save me. Right? He reproaches the one who swallowed me up. Selah, God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. Right? So God will send from heaven and save David. God will deliver him and eventually put him on the throne of Israel. And from David will one day come the everlasting king. Uh, and, and, and what God will send from heaven to deliver him is his mercy and his truth. So those who try to swallow up David, those who thirst for his blood, will be reproached by God. He, he will speak and act against those who wickedly seek to destroy David. Hey, listen, we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world where there is great wickedness and where there are all kinds of evil, and it abounds. And it may seem like, it may seem like the bad guys are winning, and that the bad guys are getting away with whatever they're doing. But God will reproach them. He will deal with them justly, and judge them for every idle word and deed done. And, and some of them will suffer for their sins in this life, some will, but everybody is going to suffer for them in the next. Or as Paul says in Galatians 6, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And so we see the plea for protection. Secondly, the pains of persecution in verses 4 to 6. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue like a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. Selah. Well, David prays and pleads for God's protection. Now in verses 4 to 6, he tells us how he's persecuted. Uh, and he says, my soul is among lions. He's not talking physical lions, obviously. He's talking about men who try to devour him and to tear him apart. Men who are vicious and are strong and are proud. Men like he says, actually, in Psalm 7, who tear his soul apart, rending it in pieces. So David is among lions, and he's among the sons of men who are set on fire, which means they are fire-breathing. They are filled with fury and wrath against David. And he says their teeth are like spears and arrows, and their tongue is like a sharp sword. So they use, they, they use words to lie and deceive and to manipulate and to hurt David. Right? They, they do that. They may say they're for him. They may say they're his friend. But behind his back, they're telling Saul where he is. Right? Behind his back, they have no problem putting the knife in and stabbing him. And we know how powerful words are, do we not? And how hurtful and damaging they can be. Proverbs 12, 18 says that rash words are like sword thrust. They hurt, they stab. So Proverbs 25, 18 says, A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a club, a sword, and a sharp arrow. And, and speaking of his disobedient people in Jeremiah 9, 8, God says, Their tongue is an arrow shot out. 
it speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. So the wicked use their words like a weapon. And at times we've done that, have we not? At times we've done that. We've said things to hurt people or to pay them back for hurting us, right? And sadly, I have used words to hurt the, 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 the people I love the most. But Ephesians tells us Christians ought not to use those kind of words. We shouldn't speak that way. Ephesians 31, 4.31 says we're to put away gossip, put away slander. Stop speaking evil and falsehood. Stop using flattery. Instead, as Colossians 4 says, our speech should be always with grace, always with grace and seasoned with salt. It's another way of saying we use words that build up and not tear down and not tear down. And as Proverbs 16.21 says, our speech should be sweet and increase learning. Well, David's enemies not only use their words to trap him, but verse 6 says, they have prepared a net for his steps. So like an animal, they, they've set traps to capture him. And did not, did not the enemies of Jesus set traps to capture him? With questions like, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Like the woman who was caught in adultery and, and Moses said that she should be stoned, but Jesus, what do you say? Should we stone her or let her go? Like offering money to Judas to betray him. Like gathering up false witnesses to give faulty testimony against Jesus. Like jerry-rigging the trials of Jesus. Right? Like telling people that Jesus operated under the power of Satan. And so on. Listen, the enemies of those who follow Christ spare no effort to take them down. No effort. Politicians set traps by passing laws to limit us, mandating that, that, that we go against our, our, our religious beliefs or our consciences and, and give our services to same-sex weddings, if you will, or, or if you're in the medical field, you must participate in abortions if you want to keep your job. They have rules and laws to silence us on the streets or in public areas. The media and Hollywood, they set traps by spewing all kinds of propaganda. How many movies do I, have I seen? Not too many, really, because I don't watch too many movies, but the Christian is always the bad guy, always the nut, always the person, like, blowing something up, right, to turn public opinion against us. It's, it's propaganda against us. The educational system sets traps by rewriting history, taking God out of the equation, scorning Christianity. Well, because of this oppression, David says, my soul is bowed down. Which is another way of saying, I'm weary. I'm losing heart. I'm losing heart. And then he says, they've dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. And here we have the twist of fate right here, right? I have a twist of fate. Here David lets us in on another reason he trusts God. Why he cries out to him. Because in the end, God delivers his people. The enemies set trap to destroy him. In this case, they dig a pit. Uh, but they themselves, in the end, they fall into it. And that reminds us of Haman, does it not? In the book of Esther, who hates, who hates the Jew Mordecai. Hates him so much that he builds gallows to try to hang him on them. And in the end, what happens? Haman is hung on the gallows that he built. So the wicked seek to maim you. They, they, they plan and scheme to hurt you. But at the end of the day... Right? It's their wickedness that God is going to judge and condemn them on. You see, by fighting against you, 
they're fighting against God. By fighting against the people of God, they're fighting against God because you're a child of God and God protects and fights for his children. That's why Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus when, when Saul, before he became Paul, was on the road to Damascus and he came to imprison and, and, and hopefully put to death Christians. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking to the goats on the day of judgment in verses 42 and 43 and he says, for I was hungry. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And, 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 and the goats say, when did we see you these ways? When did we see you like this and we didn't do anything for you? Here's Jesus' answer in verse 45. And as much as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it for me. You didn't do it for me. So how others treat you, it's how they treat Jesus. You know that. They persecute you, they persecute Jesus. They hurt you, they hurt him. He takes it personally and he deals with it as such. Well, between verses 4 and 6, David says in verse 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Uh, so, so be exalted, O God, in my situation. Be exalted in how I trust you in my time of trial. Be exalted because although I'm in the cave, I know that you will put me on the throne. I know you'll put me on the throne. And we should say, be exalted, O God, be exalted, for I know this momentary light affliction is working an eternal weight of glory. Be exalted. Be exalted, O God, in how I deal with my unsaved spouse or how I battle against sexual temptation and immorality. Be exalted, O God, in my constant pain and suffering or sorrow. And, and, and may my trial bring you glory even as David's trial brought you glory. This, by the way, was, was David's greatest desire, that God would be glorified while he was running for his life. No complaining, no doubting, no seeking human wisdom, just trusting in God for the glory of God. Just trusting in God. And listen, the, 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 the reason David sought the glory of God above all else is because he saw himself as absolutely nothing and he saw God as absolutely everything. He saw himself as nothing. He was a man who was really poor in spirit. And that's what poor in spirit means. It means you, you see yourself as nothing. Nothing. He was a very lowly man who had a very high view of God. And, and, and he knew he needed him for everything. And how do we know this? Well, because he cried out for mercy, which means he saw himself as unworthy. You're not asking for mercy if you don't, you don't think you're unworthy. The mercy someone doesn't give you because you deserve it. They give it because they choose to give it, right? He, so he cries, out, he cries out for mercy. He cried out for refuge, which means he was not self-sufficient. And he calls his refuge the shadow of God's wings, which means he knows he's weak and like a little chick. So the mighty warrior, David, who killed 10,000s, saw himself as a helpless chick in need of mercy and protection. Therefore, brothers and sisters, humility is the path to worshiping and glorifying God. Humility. You can't magnify the greatness of God and the greatness of yourself at the same time. You just can't do it. 
So the question is, do you glorify God by seeing yourself the way David saw himself? Is absolutely nothing. It's when we're low, he's high. Or as John the Baptist says, I am not worthy, I am not worthy to take off his sandals or to, to tie his sandals. And so we see the plea for protection, the pains of persecution, and lastly, the promise of praise in verses 7 to 11. And there David says, My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake my glory, awake lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations, for your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Well, David has fierce enemies, but he knows God will deliver him and he'll foil their schemes. So he says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. And to be steadfast means to be firm, to be established, to be unmovable. You're not going to budge. To be unmovable. Uh, so in all of his troubles, his confidence in God will not be shaken. And the reason his heart is steadfast on God is because God's love is steadfast on him. So a steadfast heart won't abandon God or lose hope when the going gets tough. Right? A steadfast heart will trust God in the cave or in the hospital or during bankruptcy or in the fire or in the flood or with a coronavirus outbreak. A steadfast heart will trust in him. A steadfast heart knows the mercy of God and the goodness of God and has spent much time in the shadow of his wings. A steadfast heart hangs on every single word of God regardless of what the culture thinks, regardless of what some other Christians think. A steadfast heart does not budge from the word of God. A steadfast heart says what Paul says in Romans 3, let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true and every man a liar. A steadfast heart will not bow to any idol. And brothers and sisters, we need, what we need more than anything today is to know the truth and not budge an inch from that. Right? We, we, should, we should be aiming for and praying for a steadfast heart because we all have struggles and troubles and we have strong temptations. Right? And, and listen, few of us will ever be being chased around this country, being hunted down by the government. I, I don't think that's going to be the case. But we do have marital problems. Uh, and, and we have people that push our buttons. And, and we have challenges at our jobs, do we not? And we have people who let us down. We have people who abandon us. There are people who throw us under the bus. We have children who are rebellious and are difficult and worldly. And we have ongoing illnesses. And we struggle to make ends meet. And we have fears and anxieties. And so we need to be steadfast in our faith. And we need to be anchored in the God of our salvation. Because God does not abandon us. And he will not let us down. He is always faithful. And he always loves us. Nothing will separate his love from us. And he will always be our father who cares for us. And he will never let anything happen to us uh, that, that, that in some way is not for our ultimate good and for his glory. So again, we have no reason to fear. And we have no reason to worry. One commentator said this. He said, when it is clearly manifest to the heart of God, to the heart of man, that God is the most high, he fears nothing. 
not even the devil and his host of hell. Well, because David's heart is steadfast on God the Most High, he can sing praises to his name in the cave. He says, I will sing and give praise. And I guess the question is, how can a Christian not sing praises to God? Like, how could a Christian not sing praises to God? I mean, it is the natural response to God's love and all the benefits that we receive from Him and from the cross of Christ. I mean, we have, as he says in Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Should that not make us sing praises to God? That He would, like, load us up with all kinds of spiritual benefits and blessings? So it's the natural response. It's an overflow of, 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 of our love to him because of his, his love to us. This is why we're told in Ephesians 5 to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So David will praise God with all his being, which is why he says, Awake my glory, awake lute and harp. So, so, so may my soul be roused to praise and magnify God. May my troubles not dull my soul from praising God and glorifying him, even in the cave. And then he says three I wills. I will awaken the dawn, meaning I will praise God early. I will, I will praise you among the people, and I will praise you among the nations. And what David is saying is, I'm going to praise you when I get out of this cave as well. I'm going to praise you when I get out of this cave. Uh, when I get out of here, I'm going to let men know of your mercy to me and your goodness to me. Right? And you know what this is called, folks? This is evangelism. I'm going to let people know what you've done for me. This is telling others the great things God has done for you through Christ. This is telling them how he saved you, that he took you out of the pit of hell, and then he put you with his son in the heavenly places right now, and that he can save them too. Listen, people now are terrified all over the place. They are terrified of catching the coronavirus. They're terrified that this may put them down. But they need to know that what they should really fear not catching a virus. They should fear the very God that they're going to stand before one day because something is going to put them down. They should fear God and not man. That's the message, right? That's the message that we need to tell men. They need to fear God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. They need to know that. This reminds me of the demoniac who Jesus cast a, demon, a legion of demons out of. And he wanted to go with Jesus. He wanted to get in the boat and go with Jesus after Jesus healed him. But, but Jesus said to him in Mark 5, verses 19 and 20, he said, you can't come with me. Rather, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. Tell them. And now he's had compassion on you. And then we read, and he departed and, be and began to proclaim in Decapolis, 10 cities, all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. So listen, go where you, where you are. Start from your own Jerusalem and tell them what God has done for you. And has not God done great things for each of us? Has he not done those things? Has, has not his mercy reached to the heavens to bring us to spiritual life? The reason we're alive today is because Christ had to take on our nature, live for us, die for us, rise again for us, and give us that perfect life that he lived. A lot going on there so that he could make enemies his friends. A lot going on there. So he could adopt us into his family. Therefore, 
we should with joy and confidence share the gospel with all kinds of people, should we not? Well, I'd like to close by leaving you with four things we can learn from David in the cave. Four things we can learn from David in the cave. Uh, and the first one is that God wants to be glorified in our trials. God wants to be glorified in our trials. Now, of course, of course he wants to be glorified in everything. He says that in 1 Corinthians 10, right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But certainly, this includes trials and suffering and everything else in, 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 incorporated in persecution. Right? So instead of asking God why when trouble comes our way, we should be asking, how can I glorify God in this? Even in my suffering or struggles, how can I glorify God in this? And the way we glorify God in trials is that we trust Him in them. And we anchor on His word. Even though the storms may be raging, we hold fast to Him. Even though others have jumped ship, we hold fast to Him. So you got to ask yourself, is God glorified by whatever trial you are going through this very day? And I'm going to guess that each and every one of us, we got some trials going on in our lives. Is he glorified in whatever trial is in your life today? Now I got to tell you, if you're complaining about it, he's not glorified in it. If you're angry about it, he's not glorified in it. Nothing wrong with asking him to take it away if it's his will. But be glorified in it now. So you either ask for, for grace to take it away, or you ask for sustaining grace that you could, you could glorify him in it. The second thing we learn from David in the cave is that God is greater than our problems. God is greater than our problems. Listen, you may have big problems in your life. They may be colossal problems. But God is way greater than those problems. And he has been handling massive problems for the saints since the beginning of time. And he can and he will handle your problems and he'll handle my problems. In fact, he promises to do that. Therefore, there is no need for us to worry and there is no need for us to think about the 100 what-ifs. Once we start down the path of what-if, well, what if this, or what if that, or what if this happened, right? We are now becoming fearful and we're not trusting in him. So we need to continually think on and remember that he is God most high. He's much bigger than our problems. The third thing we learn from David in the cave is that God doesn't abandon us in our trials. It may seem that way, and certain, certainly Satan tempts us to think that, right? He wants us to question and to doubt God's love for you and love for me, right? Hey, if God really loved you, if God was really for you, why are you in this cave? Why are you in this predicament in life? Why are you struggling so greatly? You, a child of God. You, who try to live for Him. Who, who try to glorify Him. Who surrender to His will. Why are you suffering like this? And the, the bad guys around you seem to be doing pretty okay. So why are you struggling so greatly? Why are you under such attack? Yet the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all with us, preserving us for the day of redemption. They're in us. And, and, and Hebrews 1.14 says that the angels are ministering to us, to those who are being saved. So we have God in us, and somehow the angels around us, upholding us till we are called home. Isn't it amazing? How he's, that the heavens are working for us in some way, shape, or form, and God is in us? The fourth thing we learn from David in the cave 
is that trials and suffering can and should awaken us to praise God as we ought. They can and should awaken us to praise God as we ought. When things go south, so to speak, that's when we must go north or we must seek God. Isn't it, isn't it often true that when things are going good, we kind of get lulled to sleep a little bit, right? Go on spiritual autopilot, kind of go through the motions. But, but trials, well, what they do is they stir us up again. And they should stir us up again. They should remind us of our deep need and dependence upon God. When everything is going good, well, we really don't have a great need, do we? But when he puts you down, when he starts to crush you for a reason, when he's bringing great suffering in your life for some reason, well, that's when you remember, I need God. Lord, I need you. And that's what it ought to do. It ought to bring us back there again. It should stir us up to remind us of our deep need and dependence upon him. And nothing awakes a sleepy soul like meditating on the gospel. We need the gospel. Considering the wonder again of, again of how God has saved us by putting our sins on his own son and, and, and putting Jesus' righteousness on us and by wiping our, our sin debt clean with his own blood and making us new creations in him. Amen? That ought to stir us up again. Now, if you're not a new creation in him, and if you haven't been born again, then, then you don't need to hide from your troubles in this life. No. No, you need to hide from the trouble that will come upon you in the next life. And, 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 and the problem is, you cannot hide from God. There's no hiding from that trouble. You cannot hide from it. There's no refuge from the wrath of God on the day of judgment. Men may think that's the case, but that is not the case. Again, Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing. It is not a solemn thing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's fearful because God doesn't wink at sin. God does not tolerate sin. It is lawlessness and it is against a holy lawgiver and the punishment is eternal death. And there is only one safe place, just one safe place for you in all the universe. And here it is. It's in Christ. It is in Christ. And to be in Christ is to be covered by his atoning sacrifice, by the work he did on the cross. And to be in Christ means that on the day of judgment, the wrath of God passes by you because Jesus has already suffered it for you. He's already suffered the wages of your sins and underwent your eternal death. He paid your debt for you. And the reason he did so is not because you're such a great person or you deserve it, it's because he loves those he came to save. And one of those could be you this day. And one of those could be you this day. But you got to know that you're in deep trouble with God. you got to know that your sin will hunt you down in the end and it'll damn you. But you can run to Christ this day, this very day. And his arms are wide open to receive you. Listen, your sin will damn you. But his wings are wide open and they are open to receive you and protect you. And he won't turn you away, man. You come to him and those wings are open. He will not turn you away. He will take the sinner who truly seeks him into himself and he will wrap his wings around you and fully secure you in his love and by his power. So then come to Christ today. Come while his arms are still open because there will come a day when his arms will not be open. Come today and find life. Amen? Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that we don't have to fear. We thank you that you have given us, uh, Lord, the remedy for struggle, the, the remedy for nervousness. Uh, Lord, and that is the trust in you, that you are God, that you are God over all, that you are God most high. Uh, Lord, that you have all power and authority, that you love your people and will protect your people. And so I pray as your people that we would trust you when we go through the times that we're in the cave, struggling, hardships, uh, Lord, just the, uh, the calamities that come in life. May we glorify you through them. May we be patient knowing, Lord, that you're in control of them. Uh, Lord, may your name be lifted up because of them. And Lord, may we be drawn closer to you in light of them. And Lord, for the soul, the soul sitting here this day that truly is not born again, that is still running, running away from you, Lord, uh, Lord, they can't run forever. And, and you will catch them in their sin one day. I pray that they would run to Christ today, that they would find him a great and mighty Savior with his arms open to embrace all who come to him. And I pray that you would do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.